So our big question this week is what Christians believe about heaven and hell. And the reason that it's a, a big question is probably fairly obvious. It's because of the many questions that flow from that. What heaven is like, what hell is like, who gets to go there and why? And what about people who've never heard about Jesus and so on? And it's at times like this that I wish the Bible was more like a dictionary. So we could just look up subjects like heaven and hell in the index under H and it would all be there. But no, God in his wisdom seems to have decided otherwise. And that's further complicated by the fact that surprising though this may sound, the Bible doesn't actually say that much about heaven and hell. And what it does say is mostly in picture language, prophetic passages, apocalyptic passages, which is hard enough to say, let alone to interpret, and parables which have rules of their own as to how to read them. And another problem is some of the traditional imagery of heaven and hell that we've kind of gotten used to. Uh, heaven, for example. Uh, complete with a white Caucasian Jesus who would have looked extremely strange in first century Israel. Now I have to be honest with you and say that this kind of heaven doesn't look like lots of fun. But then again, we haven't talked about the other place yet, have we? So our starting point for what the Bible has to say about anything is always the understanding of the people to whom and for whom it was originally written. As with every other subject, when it comes to heaven and hell, God revealed things to people in terms that they could relate to at the time. So we have to start with their understanding of the cosmos. Uh, and remember that God has never been interested in giving people science lessons, especially 21st century science lessons. The curriculum has always been theology, not cosmology. So God worked with the ancient world understanding that everyone at the time thought to be obvious, which was that we lived in a three-tiered universe. And funnily enough, that's where we still get our popular language from, don't we? We talk about heaven being up there and hell being down there. And it's why heaven is usually pictured as being in the clouds. And the master plan of uh, the Bible, the goal of creation, was that the place that God dwells and the place that his people dwell should come together. Because the goal of creation is relational. God and his people enjoying relationship. So when we talked about the big story of the Bible a few weeks ago, we saw in Genesis uh, painting a picture of God being present with Adam and Eve in person, walking with them and talking with them in the garden. And then on the last day when God made people, only then did God look at everything he'd made and say it was very good. And that's how Genesis chapter 1 ends. Except that it wasn't actually the very last day. There was a seventh day that we tend to skip over. And the seventh day was when God rested. And his plan was that we should rest as well. 
But that resting wasn't about a lazing around pyjama kind of day. It was about God and people being together, enjoying life together in an open-ended, never-ending seventh day. But because sin and death interrupted the plan, that rest hasn't yet happened. Hebrews chapter 4 in the New Testament says the promise of entering his rest is still open. It still stands. This rest has been ready since he made the world. God's rest is there for people to enter. There is a special rest, a Sabbath rest, still waiting for the people of God. And twice in the passage it calls it this good news, using the Greek word for the gospel. Now, of course, when when this was written, Israel had been resting on their Sabbath for hundreds of years. So it's not talking about Jewish Saturdays or even Christian Sundays. It's talking about the ultimate destiny of God and his people. And what Hebrews is saying is that that hasn't happened yet. The Jewish Sabbath was picturing it in earthly terms, but the fulfillment of it would be in cosmic terms and eternal terms. Because as soon as we see that kind of Sabbath relationship just starting to happen in Genesis, things start to go wrong. Adam and Eve open the door to the enemies and start listening to other voices and following a different story. The Bible calls those enemies sin and death and Satan and everything that comes with them, like sickness and suffering and evil. Enemies that interrupted the plan and hijacked the story. So when we talk about salvation and being saved, what we're really talking about is being rescued from the consequences of what went wrong. And we're talking about what God has done through Jesus to make that possible defeating the enemies, winning a victory over them, removing them from his creation and healing what they've done to once again make it very good and restoring that intimate relationship with God that was always the original goal in a seventh day that would last forever that we now call eternal life or heaven. And Jesus gives a simple but brilliant picture of how God will do that in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. That very good creation in Genesis. But that night his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat. And that's the sin and death and sickness and suffering and evil. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked. No, he replied, if you do that, you'll uproot the wheat. Which is why God doesn't intervene right now. Let both grow together until the harvest, when Jesus returns. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles and burn them, 
and to put the wheat in the barn. One day God will intervene and sort out those weeds. Everything that the enemies have planted in this world and removing it all from his creation. You see, God is not going to give up on his creation and let the enemies win. He's not going to let it all metaphorically go to hell in a handbasket and just snatch the Christians away to wear white nighties and sit on clouds and play harps all day long. God is going to rescue it and restore it and rescue and restore us as part of it so that we can be with him enjoying everything he made and everything he said was very good in that never-ending seventh day that is to come without all of the bad stuff that's polluted it which God will throw on a great cosmic bonfire and because death is one of the things that's going on that bonfire and everything that leads to death and causes death that is how we will have eternal life because if there's no more death, then what's left? Life. In Revelation 21, which is the last book of the Bible, we see how things will end. And once again, it's presented in picture language. You see, Genesis and Revelation kind of bookend the story and they mirror each other. As we read this passage in a moment, look out for how all the enemies are gone and the effects of those enemies are gone and how that intimate relationship with God has been restored as heaven and earth come together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So really that is what we mean when we talk about heaven. It's not so much a place that we go to as a relationship that we come into. An eternal relationship with God that he offers just a, us just a taster of starting now. So heaven is kind of shorthand for eternal life. An eternal relationship with God in a new heavens and earth. And that's how Jesus defined eternal life in his prayer in John 17. This, he said, is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Okay, now you may say, is that it? Picture language? I need facts. I need detail. I have questions. I need to know whether there will be rugby in heaven and wine in heaven and whether my hamster will be in heaven. All very good questions, some of which we occasionally get a glimpse of the answers to, but others, alas, not. 
For example, there's a prophetic passage in Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. So it looks like wine will be in good shape, but not so much clarity about rugby or hamsters. But here again in this passage in Isaiah, as in Revelation, we're seeing big picture but not the detail. So here's how I think about it. If there's something about life that we love right now that doesn't have anything to do with sin or suffering or evil, that's part of the good seed, not the weeds, that God would have no reason not to see as very good, then why wouldn't it be there? in a very good new creation. Even rugby might scrape in. Although, based on recent performances, I do fear for Harlequins. <laughs> so what about the other place? In the creeds of the early church, which are the classic statements that define what Christians believe, none of them make any mention of hell. But they do talk about the second coming of Jesus to judge the living and the dead. The early church fathers who wrote those creeds were very clear that we will all be accountable for the way that we've lived this life. And that's because the Bible is clear. We must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. We will all stand before God's judgment seat. Each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So we will stand before him. He'll look us in the eye and he'll say, talk to me about your life. But where does hell fit into that? I think the first thing that we need to do is to revisit some of the things that may have shaped our thinking about hell and where we've got those from. Now the traditional idea of what hell is and what it's like is influenced by three main ideas. The first one is that the human soul is eternal. So that at the end of this life it has to go somewhere. And if it isn't going to heaven, which is the most wonderful place that anyone could imagine, then it must be going to a hell, which is the very worst place anyone could imagine. And if the soul is eternal, that hell must obviously go on forever. And then since the Middle Ages, we've been influenced in how we picture that by Dante's Inferno in a medieval poem called Divine Comedy. Now, that doesn't sound very funny to me, but then what do I know about jokes? Anyway, this poem is about a descent into hell pictured as nine concentric circles of physical bodily torment. And it's pretty gruesome stuff. You may have seen it pictured in wall paintings like this one. 
people being tortured, fiery flames and burning lakes of sulfur, like Botticelli's famous painting in the Vatican. And then the third influence is how crimes were punished in the ancient world, and even right up until fairly recent times. Custodial sentences in humane conditions only became the norm after penal reform just a couple of hundred years ago. Before that, physical violence and inflicting suffering was the standard way of punishing criminals. The ducking stool, the pillory, whipping, branding, torture, and the stocks, hard labor, bread and water, and appalling conditions. So these three ideas, if the human soul is eternal, it has to go somewhere after death and be there forever. The picture painted by Dante's Inferno of what the alternative to heaven looks like and ancient world thinking on what punishment for crime looks like. Those come together to shape that traditional image of hell that we're familiar with today. And we call that image eternal conscious torment. Now, the reason that this background is relevant is that whenever we have pre-existing ideas in our heads about anything, whatever the subject is, then something called confirmation bias can come into play when we read the Bible. We see confirmed what we expect to find. However, the idea that all human souls are eternal comes from Plato and Greek philosophy rather than from the Bible or Jewish thinking. When Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, what it's contrasting is eternal life with eternal death, not with eternal punishment. It doesn't say the wages of sin is Dante's Inferno. And that understanding that in the first instance, death means death is called conditional immortality. In other words, the human soul dies unless the condition for immortality is met, which is receiving that free gift of God, eternal life through Jesus. So, which is it? Eternal conscious torment or conditional immortality or something else? So Matthew, Mark and Luke, they use picture language of darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth and flames and fire. But John's gospel has none of that and nor do Paul's letters. Paul never explicitly talks about hell, and nor does the book of Acts. None of the evangelism in Acts uses hell as a theme or a motivator. Jude and Revelation talk about darkness and exclusion. Revelation does use some very graphic imagery of death, destruction, torment, and something called the lake of fire. But Revelation is a unique kind of ancient world writing called apocalyptic that we simply don't have today. And how you read that is figurative, not literal. 
And even then, talking about fire, the main purpose of fire is not to punish people, but to destroy things and get rid of things. Like the sin and death and evil that God intends to rid his world of, along with those who want to carry on doing it. Even eternal fire, which is a phrase we see once in Matthew and once in Jude, that's just a fire that burns forever. So there are three passages in the Gospels that have been particularly influential in implying that hell is eternal conscious torment. The parable of the sheep and the goats, Gehenna as the destiny of those who cause one of these little ones to stumble, in Jesus' words, and Hades in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Uh, Gehenna and Hades are often translated as hell in English Bibles. So, what were they, I hear you ask? Gehenna was a place just outside Jerusalem, and it means Valley of Hinnom, and it's still there today. At the time of Jesus, it was a rubbish dump. So the imagery that Jesus is calling to mind is not a version of Dante's Inferno, but a place where everyone burned their rubbish to get rid of it. Big, smelly piles of yuckiness, just smouldering day and night. Cause one of my little ones to stumble, says Jesus, and that is where you will end up. So what about that other word? The Greek word Hades is sometimes, but misleadingly, translated hell in English versions of the New Testament. It refers to the place of the dead, but not necessarily to a place of torment for the wicked dead. In Greek religious thought, Hades was the god of the underworld. But more commonly, the term referred to his realm, where the souls of the dead led a shadowy existence. Jesus is drawing on this popular imagery of where dead people go to give a context for the story of a conversation between Adam and a rich man and Lazarus, the beggar. The teaching in a parable was never about what was happening on the surface. Parables were made up stories using well-known imagery and stereotype characters as the vehicle for teaching a deeper truth. The images and characters themselves were irrelevant. Just like in a sermon, we might use the image of St. Peter standing at the pearly gates. Now, we wouldn't be saying, take that as literal any more than Jesus would have been here. What mattered was what the parable was saying below the surface. So it was kind of like a, a conundrum for those listening to it to figure out, which was in this case, if you mistreat people in this life and you think you're going to get away with it, watch out because you will not get away with it before God. And then finally, there's the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. And the point of this story is another warning from Jesus that how we treat people has consequences for the next life. And in fact, if you read the parable, do that later, it's the only basis on which the goats are separated from the sheep. 
But here, Jesus does say in the very last verse that those to his left will suffer eternal punishment. So without going into all the nuances of the Greek words here, it is certainly possible to read that in a way that does fit with eternal conscious torment. But death is also a punishment for eternity if the soul is not immortal. So maybe you can see how what we assume about that comes into play in what we think Jesus was saying. I don't know about you, but personally, I'm not sure that I would be able to enjoy eternal life in heaven if I knew that some of my friends and family were suffering eternal conscious torment at the same time. I believe in God as a God of justice, and part of justice is that punishment should fit the crime, and sadism is not justice. But we do need to be very clear that if there is no day of reckoning at all, if God were to just say, I forgive everybody for everything with no accountability and no consequences, then the victims of evil and injustice in this life would never get the justice that they deserve. Evil would have won. Because the only justice that some victims will get is when the perpetrators have to answer to Almighty God. And I wouldn't like to be in their shoes when they do. So we don't know exactly what accountability before God looks like and probably we're not supposed to know. But I think there are some things that we do know. Five very quick things. One is that God is not to be taken for granted and that the decisions we make in this life have eternal consequences. Even if the wages of sin is ultimately death, no one escapes standing before Jesus and being held to account. Another thing I think is clear is that avoiding hell is not the gospel. And it's a tragedy when Christians present it as if it is. Where on earth do we get the idea from that the most important question to ask someone is, if you died tonight, do you know for sure that you'd be going to heaven? Because being a Christian is not about having a get-out-of-hell-free card in our back pocket just because one day we said amen to the sinner's prayer. The gospel is not a transaction with God for the life to come. It's a relationship with God for this life now. It's not about being joined to God's people then. It starts with God's people here. Only in the 21st century could any Christian think that they could be committed to Jesus in the afterlife without being committed to his church in this life. The biblical writers would laugh at us for even suggesting such a thing. We may not love his church enough to commit ourselves to it, but Jesus does. Something else that he may ask us to explain when we stand before him to give an account. And then finally, along with eternal conscious torment and conditional immortality, there's a third option that you may have come across, which is evangelical universalism. 
So universalism is believing that everybody will be saved because God is too nice to leave anyone out. Evangelical universalism is a variation on that, which says, well, that's what will ultimately happen, but no one escapes accountability before that. It's a minority view, but it deserves a mention, and obviously it has its appeal. One reason that I don't go with that is if someone doesn't want to be in a relationship with God now, to be forgiven now, to live his way now, to be invested in his kingdom now, to be part of God's people now, and partnering with him in what he's doing now, then why on earth would they want to be doing it for eternity in heaven? I mean, surely that would be sheer hell for them, would it not? So for God to leave someone out of something that they have made perfectly clear in this life they don't want to be part of would be a kindness. Now you may say, ah yes, but it would be different then because then we would know for sure that this was all true. Then we would love Jesus. But that isn't really love, is it? It's cupboard love which Wikipedia says is affection that's given purely to get a reward. The Bible is also very clear that no one should take for granted that they'll have a second chance after they die. There's only one verse I know of that even hints at that possibility, and that's very obscure. So please don't think, I'll just bury my head in the sand for now, because... I'm sure that if, if God exists, he'll be a nice guy and he'll obviously give me another chance, which will be a lot easier because then I'll know for sure that all of this is true. Who says that we would know for sure then? Why would we assume that? The point is that we have the choice to know Jesus now and receive eternal life now and be invested in his kingdom now, and be part of God's people now, if that is what we want. And if we are doing those things now, then we're showing him that we want to be doing it for eternity as well. So what about babies who die without having that choice? God will take care of that. What about a, a tribe in some remote jungle who've never heard about Jesus? God will take care of that. What if the only gospel that people have heard is some street corner preacher shouting 16th century Bible verses at them? God will take care of that. What about you and me? We need to take care of that because we have all the opportunity that we need. So please don't worry about anyone else. When we stand before Jesus, he will only want to talk to us about us. And then finally, whatever else that hell might be, it definitely involves being separated from the presence of God. It's the opposite of being in the presence of God that we see in Genesis, in the original creation. And it's the opposite of being in the presence of God that we see in Revelation, in the new creation. It's what was lost in Genesis being permanently lost. In 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul says 
they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable of five bridesmaids who were slow to the party and found themselves locked out. It says the door was shut because they didn't know him before the party started. So the message, 2 Corinthians 6.2. Now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to start an eternal relationship with Jesus and his church.